three words large enough to tip the world. I remember you. Welcome to AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks with your co-hosts, me, Ramia Amuddin, and Jacob Shymansky. Hola. What's up? And we are going to get right into it. We got so much jam-packed in the next 56-minute podcast. I didn't count any of the breaks, so, you know, your hour. Uh, but this weekly quote is what's going to kick off me basically the first half of this show. It's from... The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and it's written by V.E. Schwab, and uh, we want to discuss it. We're going to go into it with a bunch of other people who have read it. Uh, I think I've told you that I've been talking about this book for like the last two years. You probably heard it on the pod as well. But before we get to that, let's quickly tell you what's on the CELA homepage. This is at celalibrary.ca and there you can find all the catalog from the Center for Equitable Library Access including the three titles they have up top which are The Whispers by Ashley Audrain this is a suspense and thrillers title The Wager by David Graham which is a historical title (laughs) and The Misses by E.L. James for all you romance lovers out there on today's episode we're gonna Jacob, you wrote this. I love it. We're going to make an effort to live up to the show's name and actually review a book for once. My yeah, goodness. no more fooling around, okay? Yeah. We can't not live up to the name. Come Let's on. actually do what we're supposed to be doing. Let's do yeah. it. I mean, technically, I lived up to it season three, episode one, because we reviewed The Whispers. But yeah, I'm not going to bring it up. And also, <laughs> we're doing this with myself Jacob and two other people who've read the book, Amir Khan, who, if you've been paying attention, it's that time of the month that we check in with Amir Khan anyway. So he's joining us up top. And Debbie Giroux for The Invisible Life of Addy LaRue. Debbie, Amir, what's up? Welcome. Hey. Hey. Nice to have you on. So mm-hmm. who really read this book first? Amir, it was you, right? Yes. Uh, I actually read it um, based on, I believe, uh, Oprah um, book review, uh, book picks. I uh, just randomly picked it out and the title looked interesting i half read the synopsis like i usually do and just dove right in (laughs) yeah that's not atypical and then you brought it to the book club um i read it uh fell in love with it debbie read it fell in love with it and sorry i don't Mm -hmm. mean to give people the um uh, the phrasing that they would use to describe the book but then jay you're the last one to read it Mm -hmm. yeah i just read it recently and i have thoughts uh, before we dive too deep into it, though, why don't we read a quick synopsis? Yep, let's do that. So here's the synopsis of The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. France, 1714. In a moment of desperation, a young woman makes a faust in bargain to live forever in this curse to be forgotten by everyone she meets. Thus begins the extraordinary life of Addie LaRue and the dazzling adventure that will play out across centuries and continents, across history and art, as a young woman learns how far she will go to leave her mark on the world. Ooh. Great synopsis writing there. Uh, Why don't we go around the table and just quick thoughts from everyone. Uh, Debbie, you want to go first? So, yes, I read the book at the recommendation of Amr and loved it. I thought it was beautifully written. It was like poetry, but easy to understand poetry. Mm. The story was fascinating. Like, I'm on my third time reading this book. Third time? Third time. Whoa. It's a long book. It is a long book, but... (laughs) It's so good, it goes by really quickly. No, it's true. 
It's true. I love how everyone else is silent through this. Okay, fine. We'll get around to Jacob's thoughts in a second. Amir, um, how many times did you read the book? Uh, I've read it only once. Oh, okay. Um, but I, I do recall you telling me that this book is pretty much quotable at almost any section. Uh, I mean, if it was a physical copy, if you opened it up to like almost any part of it, the word choice, it's its such a rich story and it's written so well that nearly every line in the in the book is, is quotable and makes you think and is beautifully written. Um, yeah. I, I think for a lot of us, when we read this book, this immediately became number one book for us uh, in terms of, you know, if we had to recommend a book to somebody, I mean, this one is usually at the top of my list, um, unless they've already read it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just one of these books that just so done so darn well that, um, yeah, it's, it's really hard to beat. I think we'll get to some actual quotes in a bit, too, because I just go through Goodreads and walk through the quotes over and over again. It's just a treasure trove of great yeah. quotes. And like you say, you can just turn to any page and uh-huh. everything is beautiful. Like in going around this table and just reading reviews online, that's something that seems to be unanimous is this book is beautifully written. Amazing prose. Rams, what did you think yeah. of it? That's honestly what caught my attention um, and kept it the entire time. I, I think we'll get into some of like the things that I did not pay attention to, like plot or... Uh, referencing or any of that stuff because the writing itself just carried this book for me. Um, I loved the narration. It's Julia Whalen, right, who narrated this book? That's right, yeah. Oh, so good. She's Uh, fantastic. She's amazing. And she brought the book to life. But when I say life, I don't mean that, you know, we were springing off the pages with absolute, like, energy. I just mean you were almost on this lazy river ride through the entirety of the book. Um, And that's because of the flow of the writing with the flow of her voice and her uh, presentation and performance just kept it rolling. I honestly, I was having a glitch. I think Debbie, you can attest to this as well. I was having a glitch while reading this book where um, it would start all over from the beginning. This was when the the Sila um, folks were going through like a major uh, overhaul of the app and the system. So it was glitching out sadly through this experience for me and it would start over. And that was the only time of frustration because every other time I was like, I am ready to cozy up and read Addie LaRue. Does that mean you read the start of the book like 10 times? Yes. (laughs) Minimum, minimum 10 times. And I think this, this book sort of gets a slow roll going. I mean, uh, for me again, I didn't bother to read the synopsis too closely. So there's a bit of world building at the beginning, um, but it's so worth it. You know, the, the author does a fantastic job of, of putting those pieces together in terms of this, these are the parameters of, of Addie's curse. And, you know, you have to learn about them at the same time as Addie. It's not sort of a given uh, for either the main character or for the reader. You're sort of learning together as to what's going on. And I, I found that really good. And from my perspective, I, I know I say this about a lot of, of books that I read, but, uh, you know, the book is also multi-layered in terms of you can get in as much as you can get out of it as much as you put in. Um, as you said earlier, Ramya, you know, there's there's references in the book to, to major points in history. And, you know, if you're not a big history buff, you, you may not know what those are and you can look those up later. Mm-hmm. Um, and it spans the, 300 years of history, right? Clearly, yeah. Exactly. exactly. It spans a, a really big part. And the other part that I think sets this book apart is the art that's involved as well. It's not just the beauty of the writing, is that there's actual art referenced throughout the, the book. Um, and if you pay close attention, again, you can pick up these references and pieces. 
Um, one of my personal favorites was a uh, motif that was described on an elevator in New York City. And oh, I, <laughs> I had to look it up because I was very scene. curious. And, uh, yeah. Do you remember any specifics of like description or art from that those scenes uh, that stuck out to you? The one that stuck out is, I think it is in New York City, where she goes to um, her and Henry. They go out to, um, or correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was called the High Line. And there's a whole bunch of activities, different sensory activities that they go through. And I'm like, oh my God, somebody needs to design this for people to actually do because it (laughs) sounded so fun. I think they went through a room where yet there was I again I I have a really bad memory for stuff because it's it's the book is so good that I read something I absorb it then I go to another part of the book and I absorb that it's just it it is like everything all the descriptions are so they're so amazing but they're not super long it's yeah. you know she doesn't spend too much time describing something mm. But mm-hmm. long enough that you could really get a sense of what they're describing. Um, yeah. And you're right. Um, you can take as much of the book as you need to when they talk about the historical points or art. You know, you might be like, oh, I don't know what that is, but it's not a deal breaker. It doesn't make the book. It just makes it interesting. Well, it doesn't make you feel like you don't know anything about it, right? Like Exactly, yeah. thank you. Know, you. It's you're still, very you're easy still to in read. on it. Exactly. Jacob, I'm curious about your thoughts on that though. The um line that Debbie said, it describes enough or it describes for a reasonable amount of time, but not so long that you feel like it's going on forever. Um do you have any perspectives on just how descriptions were done? Well, the writing was amazing in this book that we've been talking about. Mhm. <clears throat> And that applies to all the descriptions, too. Now, it's what she chooses to describe that, to be honest, I kind of have, I kind of had issues with a little bit because, listen, it's a 17-hour book. <laughs> it's us against him, guys. It's okay. a 17, well, kind of. <laughs> it's a 17-hour book that's very light on plot. Mm. And I think yeah. about eight hours through, halfway, I started telling myself, like, what is this? What am I reading? And I texted Ramya saying, like, when when does this get When good? does it get any better? <laughs> when when does stuff happen? But I uh, I I got into it after a little while. Once I understood what it was all about. Because I, I read the genre tag, which was fantasy, and mm-hmm. fantasy is typically very plot driven. And, and this you're is a huge fantasy that. reader. I'm a big fantasy reader, so I kinda had an expectation going into it. Um, I, I almost feel like this should be rebranded as historical fantasy yeah. fiction or something. Absolutely. I would barely call this fantasy. I agree yeah. because Ramia's description of a lazy river, I'm like, you know what? That's amazing because you're right, Jacob. It's not a book full of plots and action. It's it's just a nice lazy it's a book. Ride. The, the concept it's itself, reader. right, is fantasy because she's selling herself or soul to the devil and, and then there's this yeah. curse and we're walking through the curse with her. But really, as you said, Jacob, we're not like, what is it? Like, it, there's no real world building. There's no real, uh, you know, episodes of plot or that kind of snowball effect of things going on, which leads to other things going on. It's very much just here's the curse and that's what we're living with for 
17 hours. I would yeah. even go as far as to call it melodramatic at times. And、mm-hmm. at first, I, I thought that was a bit on the narrator. I'm like, oh, this is so like melodramatic. Like, it's so, it's so overly intense. And then I realized afterwards, I'm like, oh, it's just the writing.、Mm. Because it really wanted to hammer home the point that this curse of immortality, but with the caveat that nobody ever remembers you. Yep. Is horrible and painful. And it just would you puts, it puts Addy in situations over and over and over again just to hammer home that point. And that, that got to me. But I, I started enjoying the descriptions just for the sake of it.、Mm. Like Addy and Henry go out quite a bit in the,、uh, the present timeline、mm-hmm. just to go and get to know each other. Basically, just going on dates, meeting each other's families and stuff like that. And I had fun with that. Like when they go to that weird nightclub that's built in the old decommissioned subway lines.、So、and、good. how it describes the sound bouncing off all of these, these maze like utility tunnels underground.、Yes. Oh, like that sounds cool. Oh, yeah, super that was、cool. so cool. Yeah, it was、yeah. super cool. But did it push the plot along? No. No. Not the point. But yeah, not the point. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm just well, being a hater, but like honestly,、uh, no.、I'm, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for what it was once、okay, I got here, to that point. Here's a question Did you feel invested in Addy? No. I, okay. Well, yeah. Because、mm, around the table, I think the rest、is. of us are totally invested in Addy. We're just like, oh my God, girl, I feel for you. Hundreds of years or however long it was that she's got a deal. And the love affairs and the sadness and the loneliness and all of that, where you're just like. And the fact that she couldn't keep anything. Yeah.、Right? Like it, it was interesting that she couldn't write. She couldn't, you know, she couldn't accumulate stuff. Like she had to steal. And, and, and sometimes you're like, okay, this is cool because she would spill something and the stain would clean itself up. And I'm like,、mm. oh man, if only that could happen in real life. Yeah.、Um, <laughs> the but, little things. <laughs> but the thing is, is it's always, it, it always comes with that whole old. Adage, be careful what you wish for, right? Yeah, I think、you、this、know? whole book is be careful what you wish for. Right. That's the concept. Amr, you were saying vivid? I was saying it's such a vivid book、uh, in terms of its descriptions and, and, and pieces, too. I mean,、uh, Debbie was talking earlier about, I'm going to use a big word today, penult- penultimate. Um, scene in the book where you know they're in the High Line and she discovers that you know she can work with Henry to actually write things down which are permanent, and, and that's such a turning point in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the book. And、mm. that those scenes are so vivid from, from the High Line.、Um, but the word choices, too, I mean, you know, they describe Henry's sister and she takes these、uh, pills for anxiety or whatever, and you know, the, the pills are described as little pink umbrellas. Uh, which I thought was, was a fantastic word choice for something of that nature. Yeah. Or, or Henry describes his sister as a strong perfume. You can only take her in small, take it in small doses. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> That's brilliant. We all know people, we all like, know that. people like that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like you love them, but in small doses. And,、uh, yeah. Exactly. And, exactly. and after reading and, and sitting with the book for, for a while, you, you understand where the author came from in terms of why this book sort of came into existence, right? I mean, I think the concept of wouldn't it be nice if you could live forever, and then sort of going from there and being like, okay, let's put some parameters around that. You know, Addie doesn't get old either. So she's, she's got eternal youth along with the immortality, but let's put some things in,、um, you know, some, some boundaries here and see what happens. And that's the primary focus of the book. And a lot of the scenes are basically there to reinforce that 
that sort of concept in terms of, yeah. you know, if you make this sort of deal, can you live with it? Exactly. No, that's actually a really good question. We're really sitting with the philosophy of this, quote, curse, right? Or this deal that she made, let's say. And um, I, I don't think throughout the book you're being swayed one way or the other. Like, you obviously see, you're seeing the realities of Addie and that's presented as as she's getting, you know, upset about it, trying to find the silver linings, trying to make it through the more immortal life she has but also if we had answered the question initially you know would you take a deal with the devil for these um this deal are we being swayed throughout the book and i guess that's what the 17 hours explores it's actually shocking yeah, it, i didn't i never took in that it was that long Jacob, yeah, and would you ramia yeah. Would you yeah, want to and, live and I think it us? starts off innocent yeah. enough too, because the very beginning scene is is of her being basically married away at a very young age in an arranged marriage of somebody. She yeah, yeah, know. we were all in that position, like, oh, I would take the deal too, ma'am. Right, let's so, do it. <laughs> I think it was an easy choice for her, and but the rest of the book sort of deals with the consequences exactly. of that, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, there are a lot of themes of legacy and what you leave behind, mm. and I'm paraphrasing, but there's a point where. She asks Luke, the god that that granted her this bargain, how do you live forever? How do you live for 300 years? And he says, like you do any life, for one second at a time. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the moment. Mm. But, but she's cursed out of that, right? Because her, her moments don't exist. They disappear behind her. Right, because if you're immortal and nothing you do stays behind, yep. like... What are you? Leaving what are you? Yeah, what are you? And I think the book does a great job of being stylish as well. I don't think it's any accident that the book is styled the way it is. Um, you know, you have this trope of, you know, the devil being extremely stylish with the, you know, French sort of accent and background and wearing, you know, uh, all these clothes, which is reminiscent of, you know, the show Lucifer. If yes. That one. I love Luke. He was one of my favorite oh, characters. No. I look but, forward to their moments through the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And there's... She's also attracted to him because he was based on, like, her drawings of, like, her ideal man. And there's something deeply devious about having your tormentor be, like, your your dream person, your dream partner. Yeah. Again, another scene that sticks out for me is when she sort of devises a way of, of hanging on to things and setting up her own apartment and stealing and doing whatever. And she's doing it all for for Luke. And he doesn't show up, and then sometime up, later, yeah. he references that, "Hey, it's remember so when you evil. were looking for me?" And like he knows, and throws that back in her face, and that was just those were intense put, moments. I had to put the book down at that point. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> they were really intense moments. I know Jacob. Like I totally agree with you. There really isn't much plot to this book, but there were moments that felt frustrating or like really brought out the anxiety of like what's going to happen this time they meet because every time they meet the dynamic gets a little stronger the uh tension gets a little deeper you know so you're i honestly spent a lot of time thinking is he going to show up now especially there's so much tension because sometimes they hadn't seen each other for 20 30 years exactly what is 20 30 years when you're living forever right Nothing. And I know we're going to talk about although taboos. time, although time is still, it still flies at the same yeah. rate as it, as it does for us, right? Yeah. So it still feels like an extremely long time. Amr, you have this uh, quote that you um, put into our outline. 
I'm stronger than your god and older than your devil. I'm the darkness between stars and the roots beneath the earth. I'm promise and potential. And when it comes to playing games, I define the rules. I set the pieces and I choose when to play. And tonight I say number. Not today. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For context, that was um, that was a line read by Luke. Okay. So, I was like, I didn't say this. <laughs> no, that's definitely a Luke line. That's definitely. If you had to guess, <laughs> which god oh, yeah, did exactly. this? <laughs> who said? Yeah, who said this? Oh man, um, what a good. Um, Mm-hmm. I know we're going to talk about taboo subjects a little later on, but I, I found that was interesting to in this particular book that she touched on a couple of taboo subjects very, very lightly, but but she did. Um, you know, there's a little bit of LGBTQ with, with one of her lovers being uh, of the same sex. And then um, some taboo-ish things like, you know, how do you make a living when you can't hold down a job, right? You have these different situations where she finds different ways of getting things or, or being employed or whatever, um, you know, of staying with people because without money, how do you live, right? Yeah, I think that um, stuff like that was brought up, like you said, in situations or in passing of other characters as well, right? But mm, she had to be crafty. Like she really had to be resourceful and crafty to kind of get through uh navigating the curse because there's that ebb and flow right where you're like i'm free oh my gosh i'm screwed oh my gosh i have to live this with this forever <laughs> so those right and how do you make a living you. if you can't make an effect on anything since exactly. nobody remembers you and you can't keep things for your own like she couldn't hold exactly. on a job because nobody remembers her exactly she essentially had to be exactly. like a so you have to steal mm. yeah. and, and on the other side of it you know because of her long life she knows the best of things right so she's in this weird conundrum where she can't hold down a job, but she knows how to get like the best cake in New York or she knows where the best spot is for, you know, uh, for music in, in New York and and all these sort of secret things that most of us wouldn't know about ever. Um, she had her whole life to explore these things. I wanted to bring something up regarding this book. And have any of you ever heard of The Rule of Cool? No. The Rule no. of Cool is basically... A concept in writing that if something is cool enough, then you're allowed to break all the rules. Ooh, and I think this originated in Dungeons and Dragons, where if a player wants to do something crazy and the dungeon master says, "Yeah, that breaks the rules," but ah, screw it. Okay, Wait. it's it's mm-hmm. that concept. I think that applies here all the time because there are rules in storytelling that we, we want to tell ourselves that there are no rules in your writing, but I think we generally want. You know. Character development, yeah, a start, a mm. middle, and an end. Like, there is an arc that we generally want when we're reading novels, right? Mm-hmm. When we were going through scenes that don't push the plot forward, <laughs> they're really cool. So they just allow it to happen. But it happened for too long. Is that what you're saying? Is there a point? Yeah. Is there an opinion? Yeah, no. I'll say it. This book was too long. <laughs> This book was too long, and if it was half as long, 10 hours, I don't care. Like, I would have liked it a lot more. It, Why did it you kind of overstayed and welcome. Did you speed it up? Uh, well, yeah, I sped it up, but, like, not yeah, ridiculously so. I want to know. Uh-huh. And ask Jacob, 
did you honestly, honestly, let's let's be real for a second. Did you just skim through, skip a few? I didn't skip a thing. Yo, you Sacrilege. You far know me better that I'm a completionist. I do not skip chapters and I read entire books and never leave a book unfinished. Sat through 17 hours. (laughs) I mean, I think if you're recommending this to somebody else, I mean, letting them know that it's a slow burn is is probably not a bad idea. Um, I personally had a a lot of trouble watching the movie Arrival because the burn was so slow. It was just like like my mind was wandering throughout Mm. watching it. Um, and I didn't have the same effect for for this book for sure because the writing is so captivating. The right that's what I'm saying. Like you know, around the table, I think we can all agree that writing was impeccable, yes, and yeah. poetic and beautiful. Uh, the the curse itself was enough, you know, or the synopsis or whatever the recommendation was enough to be like, oh yeah, I'll t- check this out. But the biggest for me, it was an almost an oversight that there was no plot development or like barely. And for you, Jacob, coming from fantasy, you're like, mm, where's all the plot at? Mm, that That's a personal thing, though. Yeah. I, I think that just comes with my background reading almost like exclusively fantasy. And I yes. had my expectations going into it that I think clouded my experience. To a so if you extent. didn't think this was fantasy, still too long. Rule of cool. Good was question. Overused. I don't. No, it's still too long. Okay. All right. Fine. Let's move to taboos. Um... <laughs> <laughs> The last comment I had on that was just to ask Jacob how short his fantasy books are typically. No, how long? Oh, they're is like the... twenty hours minimum. Yeah, how long? But is you know the why that's okay? Because there's plot in it. Okay, all right. <laughs> Do you have anything else? To say? Must have plot. Okay. No, no, no. Move on. Moving on. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll give you one more second. Any last liners? This is your last chance. I thought this was an open space here. <laughs> Yeah, we lied. For a limited time. Um, <laughs> wow. All right, fine. Um, Jacob and I, just for some context, we did do like a, a cold swap of recommendations. So my recommendation to him was The Invisible Life, which he has completed. And I am still in chapter two of The Lies of Locke Lamora, which was his recommendation to me. So Yeah, that's an unfair swap. Yeah. Huh? We're not going to talk about quality yet. I have to finish first. For the feedback of swapping. Um, but how long is that book, though? 22. Okay, there you go. See? <laughs> All right. Okay, so as you said, Amir, we're going to talk taboos for a quick second because we've been pulling um, out these responses to the question, what was the last taboo book you read and how did it sit with you? Greg David, our communication specialist here at AMI, says the last book I read that explored a taboo topic was The Catcher and the Rye. Was The Catcher in the Rye? Yes, The, the Catcher, catcher in, the rye, yeah. in the Rye. I was in grade eight, and it was assigned reading over a Christmas holiday. Um, I remember at the time being more annoyed that I was assigned something to read over Christmas because, well, homework. As a result, it didn't resonate with me back then, and I remember thinking, what's the big deal? It was only when I was older and learned about The Catcher in the Rye being considered controversial or taboo that I returned to it in my 20s and appreciated what J.D. Salinger's story was really about. It's funny to me that it's one of the most, still one of the most challenged books out there due to swearing, drinking, smoking, sex, challenging family values and tales of rebellion. Uh, So tame compared to some of the other stuff out there, (laughs) which is actually facts. And then we got some quotes from Catcher in the Rye. Did you do this, Jacob? Yeah, that was me. So this book, really good, uh, really good of you to bring this up, uh, Greg, Mm. because um, 
it is super taboo. But like, what exactly is taboo about it? Yeah, I'd argue that it's because it's the themes of rebellion more than anything, because this book is all about teenage angst and how that actually manifests itself. And if everybody, because I think what it does is it seems to legitimize that teenage angst a little bit, or at least that's how a lot of people interpret it. The teenage angst part, is that when you're saying bring it up, like why it's brought up in school? I think it's because if everybody had that teenage angst, then the world would not work. And it's deeply uncomfortable because this book kind of makes the point that there are really good reasons to have that teenage angst and to think that everyone is as phony as they are. <laughs> and phony is a word that they use all the time in this book. Really? And something that's really illustrative is this scene where Holden Caulfield, the main character, goes to a hotel piano bar. And he describes the pianist there as, yeah, he's really good, but he's good in a way that he knows he's good and he's such a phony and I hate him. Oh, God. <laughs> Nothing to Yikes. do with piano playing. And, and one of my favorite quotes is, people clap for all the wrong reasons. Ooh. Which is true. So why are you clapping there? Because he's actually a good pianist or because he's being really chauvinistic? <laughs> it's a deeply cynical book. I love it. Okay, here's one of the quotes oh, wow. you said. And he's called these illustrative quotes from Catcher in the Rye. I'm always saying, glad to have met you to someone I'm not at all glad I met. That's kind of fair, no? You kind of have to do those <laughs> things to stay fair. alive. <laughs> yeah. Like, whenever you meet somebody, you always say, nice to meet you. But let's say you meet somebody and you say, nice to meet you, and you become friends and you find out this person is a real, not <laughs> so nice person. <laughs> phony. Right. Perfect. A real phony. Then, was it really nice to meet him? No. Uh, and we also, just do these things because we have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's so hard. true because mm. we it's don't need to do these things. It's just the polite thing. Exactly. Yeah, because yeah, you know, the re- second part of this quote was, if you want to stay alive, you have to stay that stuff, though, or say that stuff, though. I think that it's funny the way that Greg worded it, where, you know, where he just like lumped all the taboo things that you could ever find taboo. And this book explores all of that stuff. So is it just taboo for being taboo? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm thinking about it in the writing side. Is it just more interesting to write taboo and therefore you stick in as much taboo as you possibly can in a book to see if it'll get banned or whatever? Mm, I think that it all pertains to whether the author or not like intended to be edgy or taboo, right? Because if he was just trying to make a genuine point about teenage angst and what it's like to be a 16-year-old at that time, it's it's really not that big a deal. Kind of off topic, but is it interesting to pick up Catcher in the Rye now? I didn't read it in school. Have all of you guys What people say all the time is that this book hits differently depending on how old you are. Because I read it when I was 16 and I absolutely did relate to his teenage angst. And it's like, yeah, people are phonies. But when you read it as an adult, you you see it like, oh, I used to be like that. And Mm. I just, I've moved on from that. It gives you perspective on sometimes, yeah, the world is kind of phony, but it's not the deal breaker that this book makes it out to be. Maybe it's like the high school never ends. And the writing, sorry, I I have so much to say about this book. The writing in this book is written like a 16-year-old would write. Like, it's not good writing, but it's very, it's very engaging. Like, he says anyway all the time. It's really weird. (laughs) Okay, but I hope it's not like Try Hard 16. Oh, yeah, it absolutely is Try Hard 16. Oh, no. Well, that's going to turn me off. Oh, this might be good. Yeah. It's like now everybody says like, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
it was like this, you know, you know, what did you do? I went like to the mall and I did like this and, you know, so. (laughs) See, when we're doing it, it sounds like we're trying to be try hard 16. Could you imagine reading a book that's written like that? Dear God. Yeah, but that's why we're saying with the anyway. Is it written like that with anyway? Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. He literally finished his sentences and stuff. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm going to have a problem. I, I can't. Definitely 16-year-old. Imagine reading this now. The yeah. other thing with this book is that it's kind of inextricably tied with the murder of John Lennon. Have you heard about this? No. Yeah, so back in 1980, John Lennon, the lead singer of the Beatles, got murdered by one of his stalkers. And his stalkers, the stalker had the catcher in the rye in his coat what? at the time. And That's crazy. He Even after oh, the murder... Wow. The uh, the murderer always talked about how Catcher in the Rye is like his Bible. Okay. Now, because he saw the world as being incredibly phony, and John Lennon was the king of the phonies. Oh my gosh! Oh, that is so yikes. deep. Oh. Also, look at Jacob schooling us like on so much more than just literature today. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Young adult genre is so popular now, and this seems to fit right into that sort of sort of slot. Even yeah, it was, even like, now, quite some time ago. Yeah. Mm. Timeless. Catcher in the Rye. Also, use it as a Bible. Um, no, Debbie, don't. Don't do that. No, don't no, no, no. no. Amir, <laughs> what? That's what I took away from this convo. Uh, <laughs> it's an open space. You're on a watch list. Now, now we're all, all going to read it and <laughs> compare notes. <laughs> compare notes and go psych deep dive into John Lennon's death. Um, in general, wow. don't walk around with books in your, top, in in your, your pockets. Po- right? yeah, <laughs> later, it will be used as a case study against you. Amir um, and Debbie, this was really fun. We got to a lot of everything. Uh, I think Jacob has really truly said his piece about invisible life. Who knows? Maybe it'll come up again in uh, future episodes. But Debbie, you're ditching us. Amir, you're going to stick around because we got lots more with you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You're listening to AMI Audiobook Review. As I said, we've got more book talk coming your way. Amir Khan has three books he wants to highlight by a different author. We'll get to that in a second. Welcome back. This is AMI Audiobook Review, where we chat all things audiobooks, and we have a guest who's stuck around from the first half, Amir Khan. He's actually our regular contributor. Uh, We call him the audiobook worm because he reads more than anyone I know. And you want to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly about one author. I actually think that it's not as much bad and ugly as it is good, yeah? Not at all, yeah. Mm, Okay. Um, We're talking about Isabel Allende. Tell me how you came across her. So Isabel Allende is actually a very famous author that I didn't know about. Um, but I came across her book because I was looking at a NPR list of the most anticipated uh, reads of 2023. Um, and I took a look at this book. I didn't actually end up reading that book. Um, but I took a look at what was available on the Sila library uh, for her and found a book um, called Zorro. Um, the superhero Zero, and ever since we did that book um, for the Kelly and Ramya book club called Hench, I've been looking, sort of keeping my eyes open for a superhero story I can sort of get behind and read. And I've always been a fan of Zorro, um, so I, I thought, okay, let's let's see what this is about. And I was absolutely blown away. So it's I just want to go back to after reading Hench because <laughs> Hench was not so loved by majority of the book club when um, we read it so i just want to say like that's really shocking that after hench you're like i'm gonna keep exploring this 
<laughs> I, I knew there were good superhero books out there. Um, oh, I see. I just had to find them. So I, 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 did, I did an active search and then I sort of set it behind healing. and then I, I came across this author and I'm like, Zorro, yeah, that's that sounds interesting. Hmm. So after completing Zorro and being totally um, impressed by it, I, I took a closer look at the author herself, Isabel Allende, and, and learned quite a bit. Um, so unsurprisingly for me, after reading the book, um, you know, she is a very famous author. She's about 81 now. Uh, she's written, she sold over, I believe, 77 million copies of her books worldwide in wow. 33 languages. Uh, she's got uh, upwards of more than 19 um, best-selling novels um, throughout her time uh, as an author. Um, one of her first books, uh, House of the Spirits, is actually a movie, I believe. And her background is from Chile. Uh, she lives in the U.S. right now. But uh, I describe most of her books as very passionate, no matter what they're they're about. So um, interestingly enough, as I sort of looked at what, what items to read for her next, I ended up reading three of her novels uh, back to back, uh, which is why I picked the three for, for talking about them in this segment of mine. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, they're not the most the ones she's the most known for or the famous for. Mm. Um, yeah. She's Did you know actually... what she's, uh, was very well known for before picking these books? Uh, no, I, I didn't. Okay. I, after, after, definitely. Hmm. And, you know, I went to YouTube to take a look at, you know, her life and, and times. And there's a very great uh, uh, interview with Al Jazeera English by a well-known interviewer named David Frost. It's about an hour long with with Isabel Allende and she talks and he goes through her life in terms of um, what sort of shaped her, how she does her writing and, and the various high points of, of her, her life and career. And it's it's truly amazing. I mean, not too many authors have been a flag bearer at the Olympics. Um, she's, she's obviously received numerous awards. Uh, she also has a foundation um, to help women um, and it sort of ties into to her life story and, and her most famous books. Uh, her first book, The House of the Spirits, was basically inspired by her when she was living in Venezuela in exile from Chile, and her grandfather was uh, was not doing well and, and was, was close to passing away, and she started to write him letters um, as, as sort of a goodbye, and that basically was the impetus to turn uh, into her first book called House of the Spirits. And she was raised in a typical sort of Chilean household where, you know, she was raised Catholic, but at the same time, there was a lot of superstition sort of mixed in. And her book really, uh, her books really uh, shine through with, with that sort of motif. Um, the second book is a very different one that she's most well known for. Um, it's called uh, Paula. And Paula was actually her uh, daughter uh, who passed away at the age of, I believe, 29 or 30 hmm. after a year long illness. And the, the, the sort of style of the book is about um, her writing to her daughter as if she would basically come back to life and start living her life where she left off after death. Mm. Um, and it's it's a very powerful book. It's obviously something that's sort of worldwide uh, and, and known for a lot of things. Uh, obviously not a very light book. It's, it's going to be pretty heavy. But uh, those are the two that she's the most famous for. No, it's <clears throat> it sounds like that one explores a lot of themes of grief. If if I'm just exploring it on a really shallow level like that, based on your description, is do you think this was a way for her to to adjust to that loss? To it was part of her grieving process. I think so. I think in general, I mean, I describe her as a writer's writer. I think writing is essential focus for her life in in all things, 
and and with a with a life event like that, I think it's no surprise that she would turn to writing to sort of explore and understand um, her grief in that process. And you know, in, in the interview, she goes over what her writing process is, and a lot of the times she she picks up a certain theme. Uh, she knows a beginning, she knows an end, and then basically the characters sort of come to life as she writes in terms of plot and um, their emotional sort of motivations for things. So do you want to talk about the three books? Do they share anything in common, the ones you read? And by the way, did you read these back to back? I read these back to back pretty much. And the uh, I think the only thing that really ties them together is her style of writing. Uh, as I said earlier, she's a very passionate writer. Uh, it's, it's very easy to read her books because she is an absolute storyteller. I mean, when you're reading these books, um, sometimes I talk about, you know, books feeling like you're watching a movie or, or, you know, what kind of feeling you get when you actually read books. For her books, it's like sitting sort of in front of a fireplace and somebody is doing like an oral tradition and, and telling you a story. I it love that. It really, mm. really feels like that. She's so dedicated to her characters in terms of what's their emotional and logical thinking processes that you really bond with the characters um in all her books um but the three books i'll go over the names and you know it's fairly self-explanatory that these are very, very different books i mean the first one is zoro which is a superhero story it goes over a retelling of, of the zoro sort of myth and legend from um from the western united states to spain and back uh the second book i read is called uh, my invented country um, and it's got a longer title, but that's the sort of the beginning part of the title. And that really speaks, it's it's more autobiographical and it explores her feelings and thoughts about um, her exile and, and how when you're an immigrant, you you never really feel like you're home, uh, even in your new place, because you can't go back to your old place because the old place is now changed because of certain events or, or politics or whatever it is. And again, she she colors the autobiography with so many, you know, she loves stories as well as telling them. And, you know, in her family, she had so many stories. I mean, my personal favorite is of a relative of hers who uh, used to take his pants off in public and give it to the poor. Um, and, and Jacob, you were talking about, you know, showmanship earlier and chauvinism. And, you know, like, apparently this relative had such a high opinion of himself that in his will, he asked uh, his family to bury him upright. What a phony! So could, oh my! <laughs> <laughs> so that he could, so that he could uh, look God in the eye when he arrived at the gates of heaven. So. Oh my God! Oh, all right. <laughs> okay, <laughs> buddy. So it's getting extreme. Again, you you have these moments of like you have to put the book down, chuckle for about five minutes, come back to it's it real? because she's such a yeah, it is real. And you know, again, not not only is she passionate, but it, it looks like. People of Chile are, are quite passionate about what they do and how they do it. And, and she sort of describes that whole sort of spectrum of it in the book in terms of how Chilean society is in terms of being so um, dedicated towards bureaucracy and, and democracy uh, to the point that even after a fascist uh, overtaking, um, uh, as, as Pinochet was a dictator, you know, he wanted to legitimize himself as as a political leader and put a, a referendum type of thing to the people saying, OK, well, you know, uh, confirm that I'm your legitimate, basically, leader. And they, they all rejected it. So, I mean, even a dictator tried to use an element of democracy to to legitimize himself, <laughs> which backfired and actually ended his his dictatorship. And, you know, she, she points all of these these pieces out. Um, and in specific attention towards the role, uh, gender roles in terms of male and female throughout time, as well as how that sort of shaped Chilean society and, and what it is mm. to be 
uh, you know, female today in Chile and in, in the United States. It's pretty, um, I think, entertaining to write stuff like this, or it could be, uh, depending on the, I say characters, but, you know, the people that you're writing about. So I think, where well, I'm asking you, did she do it justice? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think she enjoys writing it, but I mean, we enjoy reading it. I mean, it's, it's uh, they're, they're books that you just fall in love with, really, is, is the best way to describe it. Um, the, the last book I read of hers was called The Long Petal of the Sea. Um, and for those who are very much into poetry will recognize it. Um, a Pablo Neruda, who is a Nobel winning uh, poet from Chile, is, is a big influence on her and is 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 part of sort of the fabric of Chilean society. Everybody knows Pablo Neruda, and she uses a lot of his quotes throughout her books to open chapters and, and things like that. But he described Chile geographically as the long petal of the sea just because of how it's situated and how it's sort of geographically shaped as, you know, a thin country that sort of curves like that and, and comes out to Antarctica at the bottom of South America. So um, the, the book is actually a very long and sweeping uh, sort of historical fiction of a, a particular character named Victor. And Victor is, is originally from Spain and who's fleeing a dictator named uh, Franco, who was, who was a real character. And from Spain, he ends up in France. Uh, of course, he's in France, but uh, France was not too uh, pleasant towards foreigners at the time. The Second World War was also looming and he ended up going to Chile. And in Chile, he he was doing well. Uh, he was, he, you know, he became a doctor, he, you know, he, this sort of story. And then Chile had a dictator uh, in the form of Pinochet. So he had to flee again to Venezuela, um, which is not all that different from her own sort of family and, and life story. And again, it's a very passionately told, um, told storyline of historical fiction. Um, she does a lot of research for her, for her pieces. So it actually reads very much like nonfiction and pretty much all of the the coloring details that she puts in our uh, facts uh, in real life. Mm. Amra, I'd like to back up a little bit. Earlier, you described her as being a writer's writer. Do you mm -hmm. want to elaborate on that? What does that mean? Well, I mean, uh, at the time of the interview, the, the Al Jazeera English interview with David Frost, her mother was still alive uh, in her 90s, and they still write letters to each other every day. So, you know, uh, in terms of writing and, and being able to read, and, and that's, I think, a central part of her core in terms of, you know, being able to write, being able to read, and, and just doing it every day. I mean, you know, I don't think any of us write letters to our mothers every day. <laughs> you know, like that's, uh, you know, like in the Probably interview, should. she literally pulls drawers <laughs> and, and, you know, she's actually saved them too. So it's not just the writing part, it's about saving them. And she even uses them for research for her books. Um, there's a part in the interview where, you know, she has a character who's falling in love in her 80s. And, you know, she calls up her, you know, and she doesn't have to call up her mom and ask her. She just goes to the drawer, finds the letters, and, <laughs> you know, uh, it takes a look and see what the mindset is. So an author that doesn't just do it because it's a career does yeah. it because it's no part of her yeah. soul. It comes to her easily. Yeah. I mean, she's had periods in her life where it hasn't come to her easily as well. But I think it's something that she she has to do, right? I mean, there there's certain musicians and certain artists, and you know, there's some people who are so passionate about what they do is that you know it's part just part of their DNA that 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 they would be doing it even if they weren't you know paid for it. And 
I think she strikes me as one of those people. Um, she actually has a TED talk as well on how to live your life passionately. So, <laughs> you know, mm, I love that's, that. um, you know, the more you learn about her, the more you want to know more uh, is, is the, um, the sort of the effect of, of Isabel Allende. When you said writer is writer, I just assumed that she's gorgeous at what she does. You know, back to uh, The Invisible Life, V.E. Schwab. But I guess not. <laughs> that too. I mean, obviously she's, she's, got command, she's got a commanding yeah. understanding of the English language and also the, obviously of Spanish because that's that's her upbringing. Mm. Um, so she's actually known as the most prolific Spanish author of our time um, in, in, in most places. So Spanish in the sense of Spanish language, not necessarily Spanish from language, Spain, yes. right? Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's a quote from, what is the last one? The Petals of the Sea? The Long Petal of the Sea. There you go. My bad. Um, the, this one, because I'm, I'm just thinking of how eloquently she puts some of these very big concepts. She says, uh, we have to defend democracy, but remember that not everything is politics. Without science, industry, and technology, no progress is possible. And without music and art, there's no soul. It's kind of nice how she raps that, eh? I totally. like it. Yeah, I like yeah. her, and, uh, you know, going back to Zorro, I, I mean, I didn't talk about it much because... Uh, again, we have these heavier books to, to run around, but Zorro does a fantastic job of not only describing the, the landscape and, and the adventure and, and all the parts that we come to know and love about superhero stories, but she does a great job of, of putting a modern context to a lot of touchier issues. Um, not only in terms of exile, but in terms of, you know, uh, Spanish missionaries that first came to the United States, uh, along with, uh, you know, elements of the Spanish-American War, along with uh, First Nations people and the interaction of uh, of all of those sort of parties and it does a great job of of not glossing over it, um, mm. but also not diving into so much detail that the book becomes about something else. Um, you know, the the main character is obviously Zorro, but you know his sidekick or or however you want to say it is is actually somebody who is a First Nations person. So it, it's really fascinating to see how that is that is all shaped and, and how she brings these characters to life in another retelling. You're a very well-read um, person, Amr. And like just from reading one book of hers, you picked up a whole bunch of others and went into a deep dive. I'm curious if there's anything that you felt you challenged yourself on with these reads, because most of them seem very heavy-hitting. Absolutely. I mean, you know, again, I... I'd like to think I'm, I'm quite well read, but, uh, you know, in terms of the Spanish Civil War or uh, even Chile, I mean, I knew sort of broad strokes and, and pieces, but but nothing to the level of detail that, that she brings to to light. Right. Um, even in, you know, uh, even in her, you know, the my invented country, her thoughts and feelings about being exiled and and what that's like and how unbelievable it was. I mean, I think a lot of us have read books from the Second World War, especially uh, accounts of. Uh, in France, where people just couldn't believe that, you know, uh, anti-Semitism was happening or that the Germans would actually, um, right. you know, take over and, and, and how their democracy would just be shattered so quickly. And you see that those elements in, in Chile as well, where it was unimaginable for uh, for Chileans to think that their democracy would crumble at all and how the United States had such a such a big part in, in dismantling it. Um, is also something I wasn't um, so aware of. Um, and, you know, she, there's a scene in, in that particular book where she describes, you know, you know, the Chilean society is, is so into bureaucracy that, you know, if you went to somewhere to 
to you know basically if, if there was a mistake that you know they put you in the death certificate in the in the newspaper in the obituaries if you came to them and said no i'm still alive i'm here they'd ask for like three different copies of <laughs> of things to prove mm. that you're still alive oh even though you're standing right in front of them so, <laughs> yeah um, that's very convoluted stuff mm-hmm. i find historical fiction is one of the most powerful ways to retell history yep. or to learn history because it is fictional in the sense the characters are fictional but the settings are very if they're well researched representative of the feeling at the time there is there's a really popular historian and podcaster called dan carlin that produces these like eight hour long podcasts of just him talking which might as well just be an audiobook at that point Mm. and one of the things he does that i absolutely love is that he really relies on first-hand accounts and instead of focusing on dates and numbers and policy he focuses on the people on the ground and what they were thinking and the mood at the time yeah and you can represent all those things really well in the form of a story more than anything Mm. absolutely and Isabella Dende does that so very well in terms of capturing that mood in pieces and you know a lot what happens with a lot of historical fiction is there's some poetic license that's taken and there's some season you know scenes that are like unbelievable and I came across some of those in um, uh, in the Long Petal of the Sea, and I looked them up, and they were actually real things, uh, which is mind blowing. I mean, you know, there's a scene in the book where, you know, planes from the Chilean Air Force go and bomb the the, the presidential palace, mm-hmm. and you're like, "Whoa, that's a crazy scene! How did you think of that?" And you know, you go and to Wikipedia, you go back or you and go, you're like, "That's and, like, real. That actually happened." See, <laughs> so and that's like, the part where we whoa. have to take accountability as the reader, right? When you're talking historical fiction, as powerful as it is. Um, you don't know where the author has drawn that line, what part is left for interpretation, what part is actually pulling from history. So it's more effective when you can go and start digging, but not all of us do that. So uh, yeah. you can take and it. I want to just give a shout out to the narrators for her books too. I mean, I, I read all three of these on Sila and all three had absolutely fantastic narration. Um, I always am pleased when when the narrator matches with the book uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a lot of Spanish content in terms of pronunciations and things, and uh, whoever they they chose for the different books were, were right on the money in terms of uh, making it feel authentic and being authentic. Cool. And we'll wrap there, Amir. Thank you so much. Chat next month. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Take care. Amir Khan, the audiobook room, joining us on the last episode of the month, as always. Uh, and we're wrapping up now. We'll be back next week with Karen and Teresa from the Center for Equitable Library Access. They're back with their monthly convos, and that's always good. I'm your host, Ramia Amadin, with co-host Jacob Shymansky. And until next week, oh, technical producer, Nisreen Abdelmajid, always working the magic behind the scenes. How could you forget? I'm sorry, I never forget. She's always with me. Until <laughs> next time, happy audiobook listening. Damn. AMI's described video guide lists television programming available for viewers who are blind or partially sighted. From dramas to sitcoms, documentaries to movies, children's programming to animated series, AMI's Described Video Guide has it all. For a comprehensive list of described television programming in Canada, visit ami.ca slash dvguide or call toll-free 1-855-855-1144. 
I'm Greg David, Communication Specialist at AMI. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.